How do refrigerators keep food cold? Who really invented the radio? What was the worst video game of all time? On Tech Stuff, we answer these questions and more. You can get brand new episodes of Tech Stuff every Wednesday on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and anywhere else you get podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today we're continuing our deep dive this week into discussing queer fashion. But this time we're doing it with a couple of special guests who we first started speaking with, well, via email, uh, during South by Southwest. We tried to get in touch with some uh, awesome folks in the queer fashion community but, you know, South by Southwest, it's so busy and we missed them. We missed their panel. And so we were really lucky and managed to nab them for a fantastic interview that we hope you guys will enjoy. And so today you will be hearing from Leon Wu, the founder and CEO of Sharp Suiting, Sunny Oram, the founding editor of style website Queer, and Asia Aguirre, the beauty editor of Autostraddle. And... You mentioned South by Southwest, Caroline, and that we unfortunately were not able to go to their panel, um, which we did want to attend because uh, it was about queer style, visual activism and fashion's frontier. So uh, this group and also um, the designer who started Dapper Q, which is the leading style website for masculine presenting women and trans identified people, were talking all about this concept of queer style as an art form and also the new fashion frontier. And and another branch of this, too, is how uh, mainstream fashion has kind of been co-opting a lot of queer fashion. So um, I think it's uh, such a great opportunity to get this you know diverse range of perspectives. And one that we started hearing from actually from our listeners in response to our maternity clothes fashion history episode a while back. Yeah, that's right. We heard from some great fashion-leaning listeners after that episode who had created maternity lines specifically for uh, butch lesbians or uh, masculine-identifying people or really anyone who felt that they didn't quite fit into that frills and polka dots maternity market out there. And they stressed how important it was to represent those people, whoever those people are, who who are often left behind in conversations about fashion or just in looking at fashion in general. And so that's why we were really excited to speak with this group today, because like Kristen said, they do have uh, a diverse array of backgrounds from being active in design to being active in the media talking about fashion. So in this conversation, which is really a continuation of our last podcast, which was about how prints revolutionize the concept of androgynous fashion. So you should absolutely go back and listen to that for, I mean, a prints, but also a little bit of a primer on queer fashion. Um, but we're going to be talking with, first of all, Leon Wu. Like you said, he's a founder and CEO of Sharp Suiting, which is an agender luxury clothing brand that creates custom and ready-to-wear clothing, accessories, and lifestyle products. And Sharp Suiting is especially busy 
right now because swimsuit season is upon us. And it's actually the first clothing company to focus on butch swimwear. Um, and as part of creating this ready-to-wear line and also custom clothing, they created a high-tech body measurement system to better fit clothes on masculine identifying people, not just butch lesbians or trans men, but also cis men as well. So, I mean, talk about taking all sorts of body types and presentations into account. Yeah, and Sunny Oram is a queer style expert who founded that style website, Queer, that I mentioned in 2011. And they're the first trans blogger to be sponsored by Top Man. And Sunny described their goal in founding Queer as fighting oppression through fashion because they said fashion can absolutely be a form of activism. And this is something that we'll talk with all three guests about in more detail in the episode. Well, and that also echoes our episode from a while back on uh, so-called fashion mm-hmm. and uh, the plus size blogging movement that really started a number of years ago and has come into its own um, quite recently. Um, and then finally, we have Asia Agre, who's the beauty editor at Autostraddle, which is a site that we have referenced on so many Stuff Mom Never Told You episodes. And in addition to Autostraddle, Asia also leads the style blog Fit for Femme and is an advocate for queer women of color. Yeah, so uh, this is such a fantastic conversation, if I do say so myself, uh, thanks to our really fascinating and talented guests. So should we let the people hear it? Absolutely. Let's roll. To get started, uh, I'd love to have you guys just introduce yourselves and tell our listeners what you do. So Sunny, we'll start with you. Hi, I'm Sunny Oram. I run the fashion website Queer, Q-W-E-A-R, and it's a style website for people who transcend social norms through fashion performance and gender expression, and I'm based in Boston. I am Asia Aguirre. I am the current beauty editor at Autostraddle, which is the largest independent um, news media website for queer women, as well as the Gosh, I guess you would call me the founding editor of Fit for a Femme, which I've been working on since 2008 as a as a place and source of inspiration for femmes to gather and get inspiration and just kind of find their own people um, when it comes to style and, and navigating the world as a femme. My name is Leon Wu, and I am the founder and CEO of Sharp, and that's Sharp with an E at the end, uh, suiting, and we make classic and modern clothing for all genders. Okay, so if you could also now fill me in on your backgrounds, how I'm really curious about how you guys each ended up in the fashion and fashion adjacent realms. Sunny, do you want to start? Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of fell into it. Um, I was doing music in college. And then when I graduated, I started exploring my identity and style more. And I kind of just fell into it. I discovered fashion blogging and I decided to try to create a space that was uniquely queer where we could all see each other and where I could share uh, my outfits that I was discovering I loved. And then it just it just grew from there. I just kept kept blogging and people wrote in and asked questions and people started writing for us and it, it grew into what it is today. Did you find that people really felt that they needed what you were putting out yes. there? 
yeah, people were immediately drawn to it because there was so little um, advice for for queer people. Um, I mean, for for me representing people who are female assigned at birth, but trying to find men's clothes that fit, that was really like. Um, that was a need. I mean, we didn't have companies like Sharp yet, so people just wanted any advice they could get. What about you, Asia? How did you end up in the fashion realm? Kind of a similar story. Um, in 2008, when I started, style blogs were both new and really sort of blowing up and ubiquitous everywhere. And I didn't see myself in any of them. I didn't, I didn't see a lot of, um, women of color to start, and I didn't really see any that were queer women, um, especially queer women, women of color. And I've, I've been the kind of person that people always have been like, I love what you're wearing. I love your makeup. I love this and that. And who came to me for advice and wanted me to go shopping with them. Um, and so I thought, like, I love this and I should just put it out there into the world um, and see what happens. I didn't have any real kind of like lofty expectations. I just wanted to like stake out my place in the world of, of style blogs. Um, cause it seemed like something really fun and cool. And, and I thought it would be great. Um, if I did it, then maybe other women would do it. And that definitely happened, especially in San Francisco way back in the day, you had, um, lesbians in SF, um, which had a couple of other offshoots that just became sort of a very photo heavy representation of, of queer women. Um, and, queer and trans people actually and what that style looked like at the time. And then it, from there, there were a few other ones that were more plus size femmes and more focused on femmes of color. Um, so it was really great to, to see myself become not the only one out there. Um, and that just over time with the femme conferences that used to go on and um, Autostraddle coming into play and working on things with them and writing for them a little bit just all kind of snowballed into this awesome thing where I'm now their beauty editor. Why do you think a blog like Fit for Femme or Autostraddle, why is it important to show feminine fashion that's different from like more traditional quote unquote beauty magazines like Glamour? How do, how do those differ from the more mainstream feminine fashion? Right. And not to insinuate that straight feminine women are just sort of blindly doing what they're told or anything, but I think especially for femmes, and this was really highlighted in the post that Sunny did featuring 14 femmes of color that was just incredible. Um, being femme as a queer woman or a trans woman is so radical in its reclamation of femininity and in sort of hijacking it away from the, the very heterosexual world and a very sort of binary world that has very, very strong and pervasive ideas about what women are supposed to look and act like. Um, and it's interesting being a mother of a straight teenager as well, watching how that influence in the media and the media representation of women in general is so negative and so laden with with just these horrible ideas that that tell women what they're supposed to look and act like. And I feel like when, as a queer woman or a trans woman, you embrace all of that femininity, um, both inside and outside aesthetically, it's it says a lot. It's, it's a very political statement, and it is really difficult to navigate the world in that way because 
at the first glance, the first take is sort of like, this is for male consumption. This is for the male gaze. Um, and constantly fighting against that is, is you have to be really strong to do that. <laughs> yeah. I definitely want to p- put a pin in the political statement comment for sure. Um, but Leon, I want you to tell our listeners how you got involved in the fashion world. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, ever since I was little, I've always had a strong desire or love for men's wear. Um, like I wanted to wear my dad's clothes growing up. Um, I would actually literally sneak into his closet and try on his clothes, put on his ties, you know, always watch him tie a tie in the mirror. Um, I was just fascinated by it. And, you know, I'd read kind of GQ like on my own or in secret, uh, as I was growing up. And, um, you know, when I was 21, uh, just out of college, I, uh, joined a drag king troupe called the Lost Boys in Los Angeles. And through there, you know, I kind of learned the art of, of styling or fashioning masculinity, uh, on stage. Uh, I quickly became the one who was the organizer of all costumes for my troupe. Um, that later extended throughout the years and I joined another troupe. Uh, called the Beauty Kings of uh, Los Angeles as well, and uh, became a co-producer of a show that's a queer gender-bending show called Bent. So, you know, that all of that has kind of progressed up through about a year ago when Sharp got crazy, uh, busy, um, in a good way. Uh, and, you know, in terms of Sharp and how that started, you know, um, I did have a fashion design concept right before I went to business school uh, called Fade Designs, and we focused on kind of butch swimwear as an alternative means of, of you know, wearing uh, swimsuits that did not fit into the uh, very binary um, swimwear uh, industry. So uh, that was about to go into production, and then instead I went to business school, and that was super busy, and all I could do was focus on networking and, and meeting my classmates and, and recruiting there um, and studying. Uh, and then after business school, you know, I got kind of comfortable in my uh, rather corporate job uh, right after, but then, you know, more and more of my friends are getting married or attending uh, weddings where they wanted to wear suits, and I had made some connections in school with some um, tailors uh, in various cities internationally um, during my travels. It was just something I always checked out when I was on a business school trek or trip with my classmates. I would talk to different tailors. Um, I talked to tailors in Savile Row in London, uh, in Beijing, uh, Shanghai, Hong Kong, New York, uh, and, you know, something I noticed that uh, there was always a specific process that they all did as a rather archaic um, uh, segment of fashion. And I wanted to kind of revolutionize that. Uh, I also knew a special way and how to measure people who identified similar as me, like uh, people who identify as either uh, masculine of center, masculine leaning or trans men. And I knew how to fit clothes on people who identified uh, exactly this way. So um, I started Sharp actually as a side operation and um, started making suits for friends and myself. Uh, again, uh, weddings was a big reason for doing that. And within the first year of uh, existing as a business, we sold 100 suits. 
And that's when I kind of took the leap of faith to leave my very financially secure corporate job and jump full time into Sharp. We had a Kickstarter that we planned for within the first two months and we raised 69K, exceeding our goal of 60K. And after that, we raised some more funds from friends and family and you know, the rest is kind of, it just kind of took off and, and we're heading in a direction where, uh, we are being all inclusive, uh, not just to people in my immediate community, but anybody who wants to wear sharp cl- clothing. So you'll see a lot of campaigns this year where we are branching out a little bit more, um, uh, mainstream and, and trying to get them to be aware of, uh, you know, what the brand is and what it was inspired by. Okay, well, so, and really anybody can pick up this question uh, who wants to go first, but I'm really interested in how uh, you guys feel the queer fashion scene has changed, evolved, and grown from when you first developed an interest in clothes and fashion um, all the way up to when you started working professionally and, and now today. I mean, I've seen a huge evolution just from when I started Queer. It's now been almost five years. Even looking for people to feature, it was hard to find people who really had their own sense of style. Um, because when, when there's so little representation of, uh, queer style, you, um, it's hard to figure out how to dress. I mean, like, you're, there's like Shane from the L word and then, you know, Ellen DeGeneres and there's just like these, a few celebrities here and there. And then, I mean, of course we had, we had Asia already for, for femme style, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just, uh, people didn't really know how to dress and we're asking lots of questions, simple questions like, how do I match my belt to my shoes or something? And as time went on, I started to see a growth in everyone. Um, they started experimenting with patterns and with different styles. And it just seemed like the queer community through social media was starting to develop a sense of style. And it's just been really amazing to watch everyone grow. Every year, someone comes out with something different. And it's just really amazing. I, um, Leon, when you did all the, the drag troops, was that like the early 2000s, mid, mid 2000s? Yes. Yeah. I feel like I, I came out way too late in life. (laughs) It's one of my big regrets. Um, I didn't know, but I feel like I came out in the very early 2000s and just sort of blossomed in a time through the mid to, to late 2000s when something just really special was happening in the queer queer world in terms of just like creativity and performance and music and, and that so much of that manifested in style. Um, I feel so lucky to have been there for all of that. And I miss, I, there's a lot I miss about those days. There's a lot that I'm happy to leave in the past, but I just, I don't know what's happened. And I think that there's a lot of really incredible stuff happening now, but it's almost like, because there was so much that we still were working towards and fighting for as a queer community at large, those spaces and that community was sacred in a different way. And, and because it was almost denser, it was more powerful in those sort of create creative realms. Not that that doesn't exist now. I just feel like it's become more dilute across the board, which is great because it means that it's reaching more people and people have more options and more roads to go down. 
but yeah, it's, it's been a very interesting shift. I think the last 10, 10 or so years. Yeah. Um, I, I have to agree, um, uh, with both Sunny and Asia. Yeah. I, I have seen a lot of developments, uh, since the two thousands. Um, but I feel like the biggest movement is definitely happening right now. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I start, I tried to start a design concept right before I headed off to business school, which is around 2005, 2006. Me and, uh, another friend who was very passionate about queer fashion, uh, Vanessa Craig actually, uh, co-produced, uh, what, uh, could have been one of the first butch fashion shows. Although I'm sure other things were happening in various cities. Um, and you know, it's mostly our friends in the community that came out to support that. And it was a really great event that I felt very fulfilled with, but it was hard to bring that outside of the scope of the community. And I think right now, because things are really burgeoning is a, is a time to, to do that. And so that's what I'm trying to do with uh, sharp is basically bring social impact through commerce and expand a little bit further. So people are more aware of these other identities um and there's so many as you can see with all the various queer fashion brands that are out there um i can probably count at least you know 30 probably 50 of them uh out there in the u.s and canada and um all of these different brands in a sense uh represent a different type of identity in in the queer fashion space and, you know, uh, yeah, people are more interested there. I think people are wanting to see more than the standard, um, offering that's currently in the fashion industry. And, um, you know, I'm just kind of riding this wave and seeing where it goes and finally, uh, having a chance to, to fulfill my passion. Well, Leon, how big is the queer fashion designing community and what is funding like? I mean, is it the same for more quote unquote mainstream? fashion? Yeah. So I will start out by saying that, um, finding capital, um, uh, for fashion brands is particularly hard in general. If you're just looking across the various, uh, industries for startups, um, that said being a queer fashion brand adds another layer of challenges to it. I think that people are more technology focused. So the fact that sharp is moving more, um, and opening up our line of business to e-commerce certainly helps. Uh, but if you're just a brick and mortar, uh, fashion brand, it's very, very difficult. I mentioned before that we raised, we, sur- uh, surpassed our goal, at, uh, for Kickstarter. And that's because we have enormous support from the community. And that was really exciting for me to see. Um, we had some support and we raised over a hundred K from friends and family. And now we're, uh, expanding to, you know, in, in a sense, cold pitching to the average person. And that is definitely experience because um, I have to sit there and explain exactly how we were inspired and what the background of our story is. And then I have to kind of bridge the gap and say, why are, how are we going to become successful as, you know, any XYZ fashion brand out there? Um, so that's uh, definitely the, the challenges that I'm facing right now. But I think, um, you know, uh, with our expansion, which you're going to see on e-commerce, uh, that I think we have a real shot at it. So I'm excited to see where that goes. Is the e-commerce queer fashion 
industry and those sales, are they driven by social media, do you think? Kids who are, I mean, I say kids, but it's really multiple generations. Um, is it, you know, kids who are finally maybe coming out and they are looking to blogs and websites like yours and saying, oh, my gosh, I don't have it in my XYZ small town, but I can at least get it online. Are you hearing from people like that? Yeah. So I think you said a uh, key word, which is kids. We definitely have a lot of kids following all of us, um, myself, Sunny and Asia. And that's great because then we get to, to let them know as they're growing and maturing as adults that, hey, there's a space for you in the future. Um, uh, again, though, they're kids, so they can't really afford, you know, um, items that are several hundred dollars, which, you know, some of our suits do cost that much money. Um, but the hope is to stick around until that group can actually partake and, and, per, and be purchasers of this, these items. Um, but a lot of, uh, I think more effective, um, marketing goes into digital advertising right now. Um, and you will see the older crowds on Facebook. So we have a campaign that's going to be coming out on Facebook soon. Um, and just a lot of connections or word of mouth, especially for somebody that's being referred to a tailor, so to speak. They want to know that, that somebody else that they know, uh, really well has a nice, uh, personal connection with their tailor and it's referral based that way. So. Sunny and Asia, have you guys heard from members of the younger generation about fashion and, and sexual identity and sexual orientation? Yes, um, I hear from kids all the time. Um, a lot of the stories are heartbreaking, but some are more uplifting. Um, a lot of kids who are struggling with their identity and feel like they need to fit into a box, um, they say, like, I think, I think I'm attracted to girls, but I don't know. Like, you know, <laughs> they get all confused and it's really cute. Um, <laughs> um, and, Lots of kids write in with issues with their school or their parents in terms of like not letting them dress the way they want to. So, um, I've given a lot of, well, I've tried to give a lot of advice to those people. And, um, but yeah, just a, a lot of, a lot of kids are also able to express themselves more now and they have all these new terms for how they identify and that's really cool to see. Yeah, it's it's a little bit bizarre to have started Fit for a Femme when I was in my 20s and now I'm in my 30s <laughs> um, and seeing that shift because I don't know necessarily that my audience's age has reflected my own over, I mean, only on the internet can you be called like too traditional and old school and high concept in the same sentence. <laughs> um, so what I get mostly at Fit for a Femme because it's um, so specific is women who come to me and they say, when I came out, when I realized I was, when I realized that I was queer, I thought that that automatically meant I had to cut my hair. I had to put on men's clothes. I had to be more androgynous or budget up. And it never really felt like me. I just felt like this was the only way to be seen, um, as, as gay or lesbian or queer. And ultimately they, they stumble upon fit for a femme and they think to themselves, whoa, like, I can do this. This this person is clearly doing this. And then, you know, finding things that I connect to or, or other people, it's a thing. It's totally a thing. And, and suddenly it becomes an option for women who do, you know, want to reclaim their femininity and be out there in the world as a femme. Leon, did you have anything else to add to that? 
Um, no, not in particular. <laughs> I think that sums it up. <laughs> Well, you guys, Asia, you directly touched on this earlier, but you guys have also touched on the idea of fashion as a part of activism and of making your identity clearer to yourself, clearer to other people. So do you feel uh, that fashion is a branch of activism and, and how? How is it a branch of activism? Well, I mean, I think we're seeing with North Carolina that the battle's not over. Um, there are still really, really hard times being fought across this country for a lot of folks who are just fighting for the right to exist. And human beings are very visual. And so when being who you are visually and, and being identified puts you at risk or means that your rights can be trampled on or you can be discriminated against and there's no repercussion for that, that that's definitely activism to be who you are and to be out and sort of not compromise on that front. And that's really powerful and scary for a lot of people. Um, and the more you can just support them and help give them courage and help them to be authentic and true to themselves, that's a really privileged place to be in. Uh, for me personally, um, just like Asia was saying, it's really hard to just move about the world. Um, I guess this is a podcast, so you can't see what I look like. But um, I, uh, I identify as non-binary and trans. And, um, you know, sometimes I pass as male. Sometimes I don't, especially probably over this podcast. I sound more like I have a high voice. But um, so I just have to kind of every time I get dressed, deal with what people's reactions are going to be and still try to be true to myself. Like right now I have a bun in my hair, which makes people read me as more female. But sometimes if I put on a bow tie, I can pass. So you never really know what's going to happen. And it's always kind of an adventure going into the bathroom. So yeah, <laughs> I think uh, for in terms of just the, the community at large, even people who aren't non-binary, um, I think it's really important to recognize that we that uh, the fashion industry puts um, standards on all of us. And even if you identify um, along the binary, um, just like Asia was saying, if you are dressing, like if you're a woman dressing in a body positive way, like you're plus size and you're showing off your midriff, like that is activism in itself because you're saying that you are proud of who you are instead of trying to hide it. Yeah, I, I, I think that visual activism is a, uh, a big part of, of what Sharp does, and there's still a lot of work to be done. I mentioned uh, during the South by Southwest panel that uh, we had uh, suited on the red carpet Phyllis Nagy, who was the screenwriter of Carol. <clears throat> she was up for a nomination. She was very visible, and, you know, you know she looked great on the red carpet, Uh she took a chance by doing that and she was very brave. She's definitely a, a pioneer in, in queer fashion because of that. Um, we also flew to Monroe, Louisiana to deliver a tuxedo for a high school student who was initially banned from um, uh, her ability to wear a uh, tuxedo to her own prom. Uh, when that ban was lifted, then we were there to provide her a suit and she got to wear it to her prom and have fun with her friends Um we're still, you know, always looking to see, you know, how we can provide back to the community and, um, you know, advance kind of uh, this these new styles and identities into the fashion world. 
Um, so yeah, I think there's still a lot of work to be done. Even within the queer community, there's a bunch of sub labels. Um, even being a trans man or a transgender individual, there's still sub labels like trans feminine and trans masculine. And people have asked me, you know, like, which one do you identify with? And I'm like, isn't it interesting how we're trying to get away from labels, but we develop more and more labels. And I think, you know, the consensus is once we have so many labels that everyone has their own label, then maybe we won't need them anymore. And a person will just be a person because <laughs> you can ideally, I mean, you can essentially have um, a different label to per day too. Right. Think about it, you know. It's true. I think <laughs> it's important for us to be able to label ourselves or not label ourselves as we wish. Yeah. So it's a choice. I agree. Yeah. Do you think how long do you think it's going to take or do you think it's gonna happen? But how long do you think it's gonna take for more mainstream media outlets to catch up with that idea of not everybody's on this binary, guys, not everybody uses the same one or two labels. Do you see that happening right now or do you ever see it happening at all? I feel like it's starting to trickle in a little bit, but, and I think especially with like younger characters in the media who are trying to figure themselves out. Um, and I definitely know with younger people being the mom of a teenager, like they just don't care. That's, that's my take. They just seriously don't care. And they're not really interested in categorizing, which is fascinating because I feel like human beings, like your brain just before you can even consciously think about it, wants to categorize. It wants to organize things into neat little boxes um, for whatever reason. I'm sure <laughs> people who study that sort of thing have a name for it. But um, yeah, it's really interesting to see how that is going to kind of become more and more prevalent in, in media representation. We're already seeing some uh, mainstream designers, uh, Alexander Wang, Gucci, showing androgynous designs on the runway. Um, and, um, you know, the the kind of the slim fit style that we're seeing a lot in the mainstream is, is very androgynous. Um, uh, you know, it kind of takes on more of a diamond shape, and that is especially for hiding curves or, or uh, body parts that are more defining as masculine versus feminine. Um, so we are seeing that, and it is, in my opinion, different from, from the 90s uh, campaign that you saw a lot with Calvin Klein and that sort of androgyny. This is more of, uh, this is something that's rather than, oh, I'm going to pick that label because they're going through an androgyny trend. This is more of a, we're going to include this going forward uh, kind of a, a fashion movement. So I do feel... <clears throat> That, you know, mainstream is catching on to, to core fashion as well. What, uh, oh, Sunny, did you have something to add? Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Well, as I mentioned in the panel too, um, I do, I, I appreciate that the industry is doing a lot of unisex, uh, androgynous lines, but at the same time, it's very limited to white, uh, uh, essentially female assigned at birth, uh, skinny people. So I'm really hoping that we can expand that to show that an androgyny can be for anyone of all body types. And, um, I'm just personally, I'm really hoping someday that, that stores won't feel such a need to separate things into women's and men's sections because we're all shaped so differently that it's really, I mean, 
uh, like, yes, men may be taller in general or, or wider, but it's just, there's so, there's so much diversity in body type among all of us that I, I really don't think we need to separate it nearly as much as people think. And I feel the most free if I can just shop, um, when all the clothes are just together because then I'm like, like those, like those teenagers, I'm just not caring about labels <laughs> and I'm just having fun. Yeah, it is interesting to watch. Uh, Kristen and I did an episode on, uh, essentially feminism in fashion, but from the perspective of feminism being used as a trend and the argument of, well, is this a negative because feminism is being used or is it a positive because at least feminism is getting a platform and it's part of a larger discussion? Do you feel like something similar is happening with more androgynous looks or with um, fashion that's sort of for everyone? Do you feel like androgyny is a trend or do you feel like more mainstream fashion is really starting to adopt more of a fashion is for everyone ethos? I mean, I think people are taking these terms like androgynous, tomboy, um, agender, and a lot of brands are just kind of throwing it around. And it's really just code for like, here are some clothes that look really good on skinny people and don't particularly, you know, <laughs> have a gender to them. Uh, often they're more masculine leaning, actually. So yeah, I, I do think it's it's a trend that people are kind of using. And um, I wish people were a little more careful with their words because um, there are some people who really do identify as a gender or androgynous. Um, and these people, most of them aren't represented by this group. Yeah, I almost feel like if to be a little bit of a music nerd, if you go back into like punk and new wave and those times in like the late 60s through the mid 80s, I mean, you had, I feel like you had almost true, like, agender stuff where, um, like, Adam Ant would wear, you know, ruffly shirts and kind of very tight, hip-huggy sort of pants and a lot of, a lot of detail. Um, and you, then you had just sort of the straight up and down. And again, this goes to what you're talking about, Sunny look that's just like a plain white shirt. And you kind of, St. Laurent has actually been doing a lot of stuff that looks like that. Um, but at least that gives more of a balance to where you see masculine people wearing sort of more feminine or fussy or frilly clothing rather than just everybody kind of meeting in this, this so-called androgynous defined middle, middle of the road, which isn't really because it doesn't incorporate anything on the feminine side of the spectrum, right? You know, um, agender is not just about a bunch of butches and suits. It's, um, it's playing with different types of not just tailoring, but also draping, um, and really kind of not using gender basically as a, a way of styling. It's, um, uh, using clothing in a way that, um, doesn't have anything to do with that. If you look at the origins of tailoring, they, did initially start tailoring uh, uh, for people who uh, were male or, or for men. And this is um, back in the day and during the Renaissance era, everyone was wearing kind of um, draping kind of clothing. And then tailoring came into play. This is around the rise of Christianity. And, um, you know, it was only for men at that point. 
I think we're at a point in fashion where it doesn't really matter. You can um, play with different shapes and, um, uh, you know, it, it, that's another reason why I chose suits is because I like to play with suits that uh, typically are very masculine type of uh, symbol and clothing and, and just be able to suit all types of people, women, um, uh, those who are female identified, draping it off the shoulders, wearing them with shorts, you know, I mean, just playing around with it. And we're finding that a lot of people are actually liking these styles. Um, so yeah, uh, sorry, that wasn't a very direct answer, but it's, I could talk about this and I didn't want to go into like a 10 minute spiel, you know, (laughs) but hopefully that gives kind of an idea of, of, you know, uh, a gender and, and how that pertains to fashion. I feel like it's not only gender and terms like androgyny that get thrown around for, and, and feminism that get thrown around for sort of trendy fashion reasons, but also issues of race and ethnicity. Uh, I'm interested on, in your take on where the place is for women of color in, or, you know, feminine identifying people in this discussion about queer fashion. Because like you were saying, Sunny, for instance, so much of that quote-unquote androgynous fashion does tend to focus on skinny white people. <laughs> so what's your what's your take on the space for feminine or female-identifying people of color? One thing that we talked about and kept going back to in our South by Southwest panel was give people who aren't represented more seats at the table. Everybody agreed on that. Everybody was on the same page about if you want to, if you're a mainstream fashion brand and you want to have a play at androgyny or you want to incorporate more women of color on your runways or just people of color on your runways even, bring more of those people to the table. You can't, you know, work on those concepts and have it be divorced from from those folks having representation and say in what that should look like, what that should feel like, how that should be marketed. Um, so I think that's just one of the key pieces. Um, I just worked on a story um, at Autostraddle that featured Cora Harrington, who runs the Lingerie Addict, um, or Addict, rather. <laughs> and um, it's, a, it's a great, her blog is amazing. It's just all, it's a, it's a lingerie dream, basically. You just look at this wonderful, beautiful, incredible lingerie. And so she worked with some other people on this idea of like, let's, let's do our own photo shoot representing these spring summer trends um, and work with little indie brands um, to just sort of put out into the world, like what this should look like, what lingerie marketing campaigns should look like if they wanted to be representative of a diverse group of people. And they had an older woman, they had Cora who's a black woman um, and she's queer and she's gorgeous, but she, and she also rocked natural hair um, and then there was a non-binary, uh, queer woman as well. Um, and there was one other, one other gal, it, it's escaping me right now. Um, and so they came together and they did this incredible, really beautiful photo shoot. Um, but even then, because Cora is slender and has insane bone structure, um, you know, some people are like, how, well, how is this different? How is she different from the norm and it's because she's 
a queer woman and she's a queer woman of color and she's darker than most black women that are featured in lingerie campaigns. And she's a little bit more, her physique is a little bit more muscular than is usually considered acceptable in lingerie campaigns. I mean, I could go on and on and on about what makes her unique and special. Um, but it's interesting to have that conversation and it's wonderful to see people sort of taking it into their own hands and, and putting what they want to see out into the world. Yeah, that's one of my goals with Queer is to just provide this platform for everyone to express themselves. And I try to keep uh, keep myself out of the equation as much as possible. So if it's um, if it's a column written by a queer woman of color, um, just making sure that it's really all hers and that I'm just, you know, pressing publish. <laughs> um, so that's, that's just really important to, um, our values at Queer that we give everyone a voice and that it's not dominated by, um, any one voice. You know, um, as sharp as a business, um, we do have to, um, uh, it's, it's a very tricky balance, I think, you know, um, as we've, you know, bottom line is going to determine whether we survive or whether I can continue to do this or not. Um, so, you know, in our next campaign, um, you will see um, uh, a very slender cis, uh, I guess, so to speak, Caucasian guy wearing um, our suits. And uh, that is because we are wanting to be uh, all inclusive to, you know, the average guy who's sitting behind the computer who, um, really wants to buy something that's more fashion forward and, um, also, you know, maybe hipster and is cool with, you know, that we're inspired by the LGBTQ, uh, community. Um, so in the product shots, you will see that, but in all my editorials on the runway, I'm always including all, um, ethnicities, all body types, all, uh, genders, uh, to, you know, as kind of an, an ode to, who we are and where we came from and who we're going to continue to be. Um, but, you know, again, with marketing and, and product marketing, we have to kind of take care of our bottom line, so to speak. So it's going to be a tricky balance, <laughs> but I hope, I hope the community understands because um, it's, it's better for a brand like Sharp to be around someday than for us, you know, not to exist at all. And then there's no work that I can really do at that point. Yeah. So in terms of the community understanding, um, I'm always, I'm, I'm in a unique position to get to talk to people like you, Leon, who um, are running your business and have all these things you're dealing with. And then the community who's having all of this feedback that's often negative. And I'm trying to, like, you know, help balance um, explaining to the community, like, no, like, I, I'm serious. This, the, these people have to charge this much. Like, they, they worked all the numbers. This is just what they have to charge, you know. We're, we're sorry it's too much for you, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, hopefully we can bridge an understanding amongst each other. Yeah, yeah it, it is a delicate balance. Um, I, yeah. I know I talked to Nick Casey a lot about his business with his um, footwear, shoe wear, and it's like, um, well, if you want something that's made – uh, uh, with this sort of level of authenticity and quality, then it's going to cost us much money. Um, also, just bear in mind that we are dealing with a supply chain that is also very gendered and binary. And so if we want to change things slightly, that costs us money. And so unfortunately, that comes out in our retail pricing. 
and you know we've got to kind of stick together to support each other um you know uh it's it's better you know to kind of pay a little extra um for brands like this to be around and then when we get to a point where we've changed things all the way vertically then the prices can come down right right i feel like it's just something that takes time and and a lot of folks who are consumers simply don't understand because they're not they're not in your position or they're not well versed or they don't know a super ton about the background of what it takes to do that. You see that in like making vegan clothing or vegan products or ethically sourced things. It is expensive. There's a reason that fast fashion is fast fashion and it's so, so, so cheap. And it's very easy to ignore the fact of why that is. Um, but it's impossible to ignore as a, as a business person and as someone who is very intentional about buying ethically sourced things or about supporting a queer business. Um, I mean, I think those are excellent points in terms of balancing the business against the constant sort of social outcry for, no, but I want, I want my fashion and I want it now. Um, I mean, I think that's an excellent point. And I want to sort of start to, to wrap it up. I've kept you good people too long, but I want to get from each of you, uh, some advice if you have it for young listeners out there, um, whether they're queer or not, maybe just kids who feel like they're different and outside of the mainstream. What is your advice for them as really fabulous fashion people? To kids who maybe feel just a little different. Sunny, let's start with you. Yeah, just, um, uh, it's cheesy, but just be yourself. I mean, you, you really, everyone experiments to figure out what feels right. So just try things on. You know, I, I've had a lot of embarrassing fashion moments in my day, and it was all part of the process of, um, finding my style, and I'm still discovering it. So just, Try to be free uh, and just surround yourself by friends who support you in whatever stage you're in and who don't uh, make you feel like you have to conform to anything. I I agree. Uh, please don't go to some of my older posts, but you could if you wanted to to see how my style has evolved over the years. It's just the nature of getting dressed as a human being. Things cycle in and out and and. It's exciting. It's exciting to take part of those things. It's exciting to go against the grain and how you feel is more important than anything else. Um, I would say one of the more interesting things that I discovered moving from the Bay Area to Boston four years ago was how reticent people are to buy secondhand or thrifted or clothing that that's not brand, brand new. And I feel like for a lot of young people who maybe don't have access to a lot of money and can't spend what they would ideally like to to achieve the style that they they want to represent or experiment or play with, um, don't be scared of that. It, there's nothing weird about it. And I can't believe I had to say that to so many clients as a personal stylist. But sometimes it's one of the only ways to get the look that you want from older clothing or, or just there's no way you can buy it retail off the shelf. But you can absolutely get that if you go and hunt for it um, in the bins or at some place like Buffalo Exchange or Crossroads where that stuff is a lot more accessible than it is brand new. So just have fun and don't be squicked out by any of that stuff. And yeah. 
Nice. Thank you so much. Um, could you go down the line again and tell our listeners where they can find you online and where they can find out more about your work? Sunny, let's start with you. Yeah, so my website is queerfashion.com. It's spelled Q-W-E-A-R, fashion.com. And that's where you can see everything we've done. Uh, you can find my style blog, Fit for a Femme, at fitforafemme.com, um, just like it sounds. And autostraddle.com is where you can find a lot of my style and beauty coverage. Um, and that is also just how it sounds. And if you want to follow me on Instagram or Twitter, there my handle is Dear Jonesy. J-O-N-E-S-E-Y. I know Instagram is super popular, so. Cool. And uh, for Sharp, we've got a spring-summer collection that's launching in the next uh, month or two. And you can find that at www.sharp, S-H-A-R-P-E, suiting, S-U-I-T-I-N-G, dot com. Or find us on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and the Twitter and Instagram is at Sharp Suiting. Great. Thank you guys so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. I could honestly talk to you like for three more hours. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And I just want to thank Leon, Sunny, and Asia so much for joining us. I really think that uh, our listeners will identify with a lot of what they said. And I was so pleased to really be able to represent these fashion viewpoints on our show. And I'm also looking forward to hearing from listeners who are in the style and design fields, um, because I'm sure that you have even more insights to talk about this. And also uh, listeners within the LGBTQ community. I mean, uh, do these issues resonate with you? Have there been challenges finding the fashion that really fits who you are both inside and out? Um, so momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can send all of your emails. Of course, you can always tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Olivia, and Kristen, she has some questions in here, too, for us to address. Okay. Okay, so Olivia says, first, I just want to say thank you for doing what you do. I love listening to your thoughtful conversations on the podcast while I'm doing everything from working to cleaning, and it totally brightens my day. I was listening to your most recent episode about the lesbian wage bump, and the idea that many lesbians never count on being attached to a male breadwinner really got me thinking. I, a straight, white, cis lady, have more or less always counted on being in a partnership with a male breadwinner. I knew from a very early age that I wanted to get married someday, and I figured my marriage would work the way my parents does. But my mom lends a significant hand since she's back to work after taking more time off when my sister and I were little. I've never been encouraged to make being a primary breadwinner a priority. This is presumably in part because I'm female, but also because I come from a family of creatives who always put following your passions before making money. My decisions about my career have been made accordingly. 
As a working artist, I'm much more concerned with a career trajectory that will fuel my passions than with what will be a stable source of income for a future family. This feels like a betrayal of both feminism and my boyfriend. I dislike the fact that I mentally bank on the safety net when thinking about my future, and it feels terribly unfair that I'm primarily concerned with chasing my passions while my boyfriend has to balance that with having a career stable enough to support any family we might eventually have, though he assures me it's totally fine. All this to say, I was wondering if you could do an episode on reconciling one's radical feminism with being in typically quote-unquote female positions. Does this kind of thing grind other women's gears? How many of us are in those positions by choice? How do you navigate being a feminist while pursuing your dreams on another person's dime? I mean, I think that that is all about partnership, gender aside, you know? I mean, there are times in long-term relationships when one person kind of has to carry more of the weight and it evens out most likely at some point and I don't think that that it necessarily means that you're being a bad feminist. Yeah, and and the same sentiment goes for what job you choose. I mean, if you wanted to be a prima ballerina, I'm thinking of like something super, you know, traditionally feminine. You know, it, it, that doesn't matter if that is your passion, and it would be one thing if you were trying to take advantage and and get a leg up over your partner, but it sounds like you guys are in really open, clear, honest communication with one another that you really want to pursue your passion and your boyfriend who sounds like will become your husband one day or, you know, you guys are just in it for the long haul. Um, it sounds like he's on board with this, too. And so, no, like Kristen said, I don't think that makes you a bad feminist. And I don't think that if you're in a traditionally a uh, female-coded or male-coded line of work or a female-dominated or male-dominated line of work, I don't think either one speaks to what kind of feminist you are. I don't think that your passion or your skills speaks to feminism. I think you can be a feminist and be in a super traditional feminine role, female role, or you could be a construction worker. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, because I think we also conflate feminist and feminine and uh, consider that, you know, things that are feminine are somehow the antithesis of feminism. And that's not the point at all. Yeah. So, you know, your own motivations and it sounds like they're pure and let your partner support you because that's what partnership is all about. So thanks for your question. Um, I've got another letter here from Natasha about our lesbian wage gap episode. And Natasha writes... I listened to the Lesbian Wage Gap episode today while I was out in the yard doing work, and I'm just really glad you discussed it. As a queer woman who grew up in a rural area and is continuing to work in agriculture and will live in a rural area all my life, I really appreciated you talking about the members of the queer community who live in rural areas and the jobs we do. There's a big myth that there's no queer people in rural areas and we all want to flee to the cities. So even your discussion of poverty and the difficulty living and working in rural areas is super appreciated by me because so often we don't exist in anything. I've really been enjoying listening to your podcast as I'm walking fields all day. So thank you and keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Natasha. And for all of our listeners, if you want to send us a letter, mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can do that. 
And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about queer fashion and our fabulous panelists today, head over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 